0: Good morning! This is Lynn M. Thomas from Verity, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future.
1: Good
2: morning! Welcome to Too Much Scrolling for November 28, 2023. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Chip Hessenflare. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. We are in that lane between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So much fun is happening. So many things are happening. Every
1: Everybody's got their schedule and we're all headed places this week, Chip. All the young people are real excited. There are parties and things to kind of lead up to it. But you know, it's it really is that fun time of year where things are, um, are are dark very early, and there's Christmas music pretty much playing everywhere you go. To
2: I hope everybody's
1: having fun out there. Down, my... Film at
0: eleven.
2: Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. You have gone to a couple of really big movies this week. Let's start with the big
1: one. This is Napoleon that was just released. Napoleon, Steve. (laughs) Ah, the French. All right, so this is uh, directed by Ridley Scott. And this is also showing uh, a walk-in Phoenix, David. Yes, Joaquin Phoenix. Not a walk-in Phoenix. That's a different person, I think. This is, this is the ex- really exciting time of the year. All those movies get released that you're like, oh, they're going to go for awards. This is one that everyone was looking for. This is an adult film. I mean, a grown-up film. <laughs> the The preview I saw was, it was packed. Okay. So it, everyone was excited to see this. You know, the sets are great. The costumes are great. The cast is great. You know, no expense was spared. To put together this film but the real challenge with it is it's like a great big paintbrush that kind of walks over such a a long period of time you never really get grounded maybe in where you need to be other than kind of this is something that happened at this time and this is something that happened at that time but there is a story behind it that i think you'd have to have a lot more information on french history um, to really be able to take this and anchor it down. I, to say to follow it's not fair because you can follow it. But I just, there's just so much more probably to it. Sure. But, um, I like this. I will say 60 out of 100. But I don't think that this is going to be one for the ages type of uh, thing. And that's just too bad. But we do start off with the French Revolution. And then we we end with Waterloo. I'm sorry, we don't end with water. We end we where uh, Napoleon is exiled to the island for the second time, to a hmm. different island, and dies. But anyway, uh, Napoleon is a, histor- a historical character that you know I, I really could spend a lot more time uh, reading about and uh, understanding, and that's where it left me. It says, hey, I should probably learn more French history.
2: That's, that's the kind of feeling that I was getting from your review is if you knew more about French history, you might understand better. Otherwise this might be the impetus to going forward to learning more about Napoleon. That sounds awesome. Maybe a travel to France and eating more French food, Steve. There you There's your answer. You also saw the latest Disney film wish. This is uh interesting, different take on,
1: on the Disney genre. Yeah, in fact, there's this is an interesting film because when you're reviewing it, and it's got a wonderful cast to it also, but really, it looks like a television program that they kind of really tighten up a little bit of the animation. So the animation is, you know, very pedestrian, in my opinion, as, as some person who works in animation would say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about just how I review it. Mm-hmm. But I got to see this opening night with a full theater. They were all three, four, five-year-olds and their parents. So the parents are all excited. The 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 little girls are all excited because they're with their parents and everybody wants to have that magical Disney princess experience. And so here I am, you know, this uh, guy that's, not any of those demographics, right? But I'm a, you yeah, I'm a father who remembers what it was like to take my little girls to these these movies. Those little girls and their parents, they left and they were happy. Okay. They were very happy.
2: So that sounds but, like yeah. a perfect movie for this week. The after Thanksgiving, before Christmas, taking your family to see a Disney type movie.
1: So, and I'm, I'm going to mention this also, Jim Shooter, who was the editor at Marvel Comics during the uh, '80s. 1980s, I used to say that uh, a comic book that would be released, it was always a person's first comic book. So when you introduce your character, you've always got to kind of show that, you know, Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider and that he, um, he can uh, shoot webs. He can crawl up walls and he's super strong. And if you do that, you've established this character. So when we watch a film like this, we always have to remember, this is a this could be a child's first movie. They're not disappointed, but for a person who has seen lots of these films, this is not one of the better ones. Um, the, I mean, it's it's not bad or anything. It's just not one of the better ones. You, but what I really think that people will notice is the self referencing of other Disney products. Mm-hmm. It is so overwhelmingly just a part of the story you you can't help but leave this that there's somehow you know is this an attorney telling disney like hey you you gotta wish upon a star or we're gonna lose our access to that somebody's gonna take it from us you don't think it's just
2: the the nostalgia factor of the the older generation seeing these things and relating to these
1: stories for their young people in this movie I think maybe that may have been an attempt, but it's pretty obnoxious because there are constant references. You know, they'll give a piece of dialogue. It's from a reference from a movie. Mm -hmm. Another one. They'll uh, there's a piece. There's something going on. You know, it's wish upon a star. So anyway, you, you could be very cruel to this film. Uh, But I I don't think that's necessary because, you know, I know who the audience is. Mm -hmm. And I I do want to mention that our princess here does have a a connection to North Carolina. Really? Uh, Center of uh, the universe? Ariana DeBose. Well, if you remember, Jodi Benson has -hmm. a connection to Illinois. She was in Rockford. Mm -hmm. But uh, Ariana uh, DeBose is um, is our Disney princess. She's from Wilmington, North Carolina. Oh. And also, she did a lot of her dance training up here in Raleigh. So it's just kind of amazing that, you know, it's always fun to kind of find a little connection that makes it a little extra special. Love it. What's your chip score on this one? 60 out of 100.
2: Okay. You also saw a documentary that uh, I should have gone to see, but you saw it. This is A Disturbance in the Force, How the Star Wars Holiday Special Happened.
1: To Steve, I did get to see this, and I let me first say that this wasn't a packed audience, but really? there was a, a specialized audience that was there. There was a certain demographic, Steve, from a certain and, uh, point of view. Let's just say that a lot of Steve's were in the audience there, <laughs> and they really laughed out loud. They, um, truly embraced what, what this holiday special was about. But I, I do want to uh say that I I I really got to to experience a few things. And the first thing you need to know is Star Wars came out in 1977 Mm -hmm. and the Empire Strikes Back came out in 1981. Right. And in between, there wasn't really a plan. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have so many of these references because Lucasfilm or George Lucas or whoever was behind 20th Century Fox, Anything that could keep Star Wars in the public's eyes, they would say, oh yeah, let's do that. And it could be like, hey, we're going to do a Donnie Marie special where the Osmonds are going to uh, play the the Stormtroopers and they're going to do some disco dancing.
2: They did not play the Stormtroopers. They were, they were Luke and Leia and then Chris Christopherson played Han Solo. It, it made perfect sense.
1: No, the the brothers did play the Stormtroopers. Oh, the brothers did? Okay, there you go. (laughs) So the Osmonds, Steve, not Donnie and Marie, the Osmonds. Okay. And, uh, you know, if if you needed to have uh, Darth Vader show up at like a mall uh, opening or something like that, they'd they'd throw him out there. It really was pretty ingenious because what we learned from it is every time there was some kind of event that like that, that would happen a year later, All of a sudden, people would go back to the theater to see Star Wars. And and we forget that movies just played differently then. Mm -hmm. Like a theater could have Star Wars for multiple years. My local hometown theater, when The Empire Strikes Back came out, I think they played it for three or four straight years. Wow. Different It it, it really is. Because now you would release a film and then uh, release it for rent and then release it to to purchase. Mm Mm-hmm. And that would happen within six months yeah, or less or less. So in
2: 1978, we got the gift of the star Wars holiday special and the gift of life day. And this documentary is all about how that happened, how the
1: variety hour took over star Wars for this special. Yep. They had Lucas for one day. That's the first thing we, we learned from this. And then it just kind of went through a couple of directors and they were putting on a variety uh, show and it is so bizarre the people that they chose. So Cher was supposed to be part of this. But that would have that would have made it better. Yep, she pulled out. Okay. But yeah, you know, if you've seen this, it's it's way too long. There's <laughs> lots of grunts and all this other stuff. They've got all the the um, people from Variety Hours. I mean, you, you've got all Articorman, these actors: G. Arthur, Art Carney. It's a festival of stars, but from a different generation. Yes. Like who are these people <laughs> or the young people that this was was created for? Well, it, what it happened what happened was um it was designed by people who knew variety shows. So anyway, we get a lot of commentary on this. I leave this with there was a conversation about the buildup of Star Wars before the movie was released that um, there was a guy that George Lucas went to film school with who basically became a publicist and would travel to the comic convention of the time, which were still new, Mm -hmm. or to the sci-fi convention or whatever, and would throw up pictures about this movie that was coming out in 1977 and build up this momentum to kind of push Star Wars into what became the zeitgeist and what became such an overpowering, product at some point Mm -hmm. that to me would be a wonderful book or um story to explore because it really was fascinating
2: so does this documentary hold that fascination would you would you
1: suggest this documentary to to people oh only for someone who has interest in this subject i say 55 out of 100 it really is bizarre as far as the the holiday special but i think the commentary around it is very interesting and also there's a group of people that they work with george lucas who were interviewed that you get some insights on you know george was a, a independent filmmaker he wasn't disney at the you know what disney is today mm-hmm. he was an independent guy just trying things out and and why not
2: and why not? Why not? 1978, that, that is the subtitle for 1978. And why not? This one is coming to Apple TV Plus next Tuesday, December 5th. That's when I'm going to see it for sure.
1: So Steve, I'm not the only one who got to see some movies. You got to see a couple movies too. Tell us a little bit about Leo.
2: Yeah, I've had a little bit of time off of school, a little bit of time to actually, you know, watch a movie for our podcast. Leo is the latest Netflix animated movie. This is written by Robert Smigel, who you might know his name as one of the head writers of Saturday Night Live. This is an Adam Sandler film, but in my opinion, it is much more a Robert Smigel film than Adam Sandler. This is the story of two classroom pets in a fifth grade classroom in Florida, uh, an iguana and a turtle, and uh, the 74-year-old lizard is learning about life in this classroom from his fifth grade perspective. He only knows the things that are taught in fifth grade, and he's been there since 1949. The story here is all about the history of education, these kids in 2023 and how they learn, and how this creature. Can shape the future for these kids. This is brilliant writing. This has all of the emotions that you need in a good movie. It's got great characterizations. All the kids are different, they all have their own individual issues. And Leo, the Adam Sandler character, solves all their problems because, oh, did I mention he's a talking lizard?
1: We know Smigel from TV Funhouse. Yes. That's that was, what he did for Saturday Night Live. That was his and,
2: uh, feature where his name was presented to the public. Yes,
1: and we know um, Adam Sandler, but you know, unfortunately, they didn't go to travel to some exotic location for a movie that he's part of Steve. What was that all about? This, that, that did occur to me that he had his friends come into
2: sound booths to record the sounds of their voices. But yes, all of the Adam Sandler troop is in this. Bill Burr is the turtle's voice and he gets his, uh, special perspective on life to us through that character. So many other comedians, so many Famous voices are a part of this. I recommend this one. This is, this is maybe the Adam Sandler movie that I have ever recommended on this show. Look at that. Up All up. Right, Steve,
1: that was not the only film you got to see.
2: I'm a dude, he's a dude, she's a dude, we're all dudes. Good Burger 2 premiered this week on Paramount Plus, the sequel to Good Burger from 1997, Chip. 26 years later, Dexter and Ed are back at the Good Burger, and, and all of the silliness ensues that you would expect from this Nickelodeon film.
1: Well, you don't have to, to uh, mine uh Hollywood too deeply, Steve, to find all the uh, th- you know Gone with the Wind part 2. This time it's different. Titanic part 2, Hamlet 2. Yes, Good Burger 2 is
2: just as silly as you expect. These characters are lovable friendly, happy people going through just exactly what you would expect. The mega corporation wants to clone the good burger. They want to replace the characters with robots and they want to take over the world of course worse course they do Dexter and Ed are modern day Abbott and Costello. They are doing all of the slapstick silliness and the wordplay that we love from Abbott and Costello and from Dexter and Ed, uh, Keenan and Kel are phenomenal. I, I look forward to what they are planning because yes, they are planning more adventures together as this comedy duo. Is this a a McDowell's The
1: Big Mix, Steve?
2: It's way worse than that. It, it is the quick err stop opening across the street. <laughs> it, it is, it is all of that silliness, all of that fun. This is family fun. If you're getting together with, with small children and nostalgic people from, <laughs> from the 1990s, the late 1900s, this is so fun. Nothing is offensive. There's a lot of, uh, sauces that are thrown and a lot of milkshakes that are thrown there, there's so much fun to Good Burger too. Book it.
1: Book it. 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 Book it.
2: Brings us to our book at our Book of the Week. It is the end of the month. All of the celebrations of Thanksgiving and moving into, everybody's putting up their Christmas trees. It must be time to talk to Pam Medore about our book club. Good morning, Pam.
0: Good morning, guys. How's it going?
2: It is fantastic. It is I'm ready to be learning. It is time of the year. It is it's just <laughs> just, it's all Steve all the time. I love it. So our book of the month this month is Do You Dream of Terra 2? This is by Temi O. It was published in 2019, and it is, boy, oh, boy, a big, giant metaphor thinking about so many things the idea here the plot is a earth-like planet is discovered and a team of six teenagers along with three veteran astronauts embark on a 22-year trip to set up a planet for human colonization
1: Ooh, this is this... day one we're gonna travel <laughs> had breakfast
0: So you guys, this is the scenario that I love. You guys know how much I love space exploration. And it has our 16 protagonists. So I opened this book really, really excited. It was a big NPR pick a couple of years ago. It's been on my list for a couple of years and it finally floated to the surface. Um, So I knew I was going to love this book and I totally did. But let me ask how how you guys felt about it.
1: I like this book. This was a this was a fun book. Certainly, a, a lot was going on, um, and it it, it um, yeah, it was a, a thinking book too. I certainly spent a lot of time contemplating like how would I act in this situation, and you know what does this mean as far as the overall story? Because I think there's some a lot of uh, beautiful um, yeah parts about growing up there. Parts about uh, having to make choices. Parts of not having all the right information and eventually recognizing that the, uh, you know, the previous generation has trained you, but eventually has to let you go.
2: Mm, there is so much to this story. Pam, the story of a 22-year mission is my least favorite type of story for space exploration. <laughs> I am a space adventure type. I want to hear about the adventure, the thrill, the the absolute joy and sorrow of all of it. And I was going, oh no, this is 22 years. How long is this book going to go?
1: <laughs> and
2: then what the author was able to do was, was give me all of that space adventure and then tie it back to the Experiences that these characters had on earth, thinking about how to put this all together in such a special way that this is very much my favorite 22 year mission. (laughs) Of of all the 22-year missions, I like this one the best. It is all about the characters. It's all about learning who these people are. And, yes, the team of teenagers is an important part of this for me because thinking through how are we going to survive a 22-year mission, we can't take 50-year-olds... Or, or forty nine year olds. How uh, much? How yeah. many Doritos and Mountain Dews can we take with us? Uh that that was one of my questions that I raised: is how can we survive twenty two years? How many supplies do you have to stack up for a twenty two year mission? I like this very much, Pam. This this is very much a character study, very much a a, a metaphor. There's so many metaphors. I think in my notes, I think I wrote the r- word metaphor about twelve times. Yeah. The different list of metaphors that this author was putting together, including the ultimate uh, metaphor for how this ends, uh, intrigued me the whole way through.
0: Well, let's talk through some of those metaphors, Steve. What were a couple of your favorites?
2: Well, let's start with the name of the ship, because that is usually a metaphor for how this story is going to go. The name of the ship is the Damocles. And the idea of the sword of Damocles is hanging over your head. You never know what's going to happen. It could be anything. Is it fate? Is it luck? Is it premonition? These ideas are so well put together by this author. We are constantly going through these adventures. This happens, and that happens, and that happens. But is that? It- fate is it something that is going to happen no matter what choice you make is it luck are we just lucky or is it premonition there's one character at least who has a sense of premonition who thinks she knows what's going to happen
0: (laughs) (laughs) well and that was one of the questions that really really intrigued me about this novel is the idea that apparently in space exploration at this time and guys i want to talk about the time but we'll come back space exploration at this time it is possible to put people into some sort of deep sleep and transport their bodies why don't they just do that right so there are colony ships out there with just you know beds of people <laughs> laying <laughs> sleeping resting who will be awakened um, unchanged when they arrive at the, at the distant colony But these guys are awake for the whole time. They're aging. And so in a a way, the author is telling us right from the start that this is a MacGuffin, right? This is like what she's really, really interested in is how relationships work, right? And if you take extraordinary people, in a way, these six kids who were chosen out of thousands as kids who were really, really, really smart and cover between the six of them all of the areas of expertise that you would need on a space mission they're like superheroes right Mm -hmm. they're like kids at like the academy for the supernatural except they're not superheroes and they have huge mental health challenges which Mm -hmm. I definitely want to talk about and they have huge relationship challenges and they've got a sort of Damocles hanging over their head And instead of being under the sword, they're inside of it. Yes. Right? And so...
2: It's sort of in control. Sort of. Or are they?
0: But not really, yeah. Right? And so I feel like... And even the title, Do You Dream of Terra Too? Like, when you've got a title in a futuristic world with dreaming, you immediately think of Philip K. Dix. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah. Right. And so, you have this sense of like, what is reality? Will I be able to tell the artificial intelligences from the intelligences from the human intelligences? And so, I—I mean, she's doing she's doing a lot of work with intertext.
2: There's so much work with intertext. There's so (laughs) much. So much that you need to come to this book thinking about already in order to have this adventure with these kids, for sure.
0: One more thing that strikes me about The Sword of Damocles is this idea that there's something about to happen. There's something that's about to fall on our heads as a, as, as a species, as a human civilization. And when this was written, 2019, you know, that thing is the climate crisis, right? I think.
2: And and I think when it was published is more accurate because because you have an interesting point that you're going to make in a minute.
0: Right. (laughs) So so when it was published in 2019, sort of Damocles, like what is hanging over our society? The climate crisis is an obvious one. But in 2019, the pandemic is a moment, you know, we can say now the pandemic was just moments away. Mm -hmm. We have a huge number of conflicts in the world that are looking very, very scary. There's a a, anxiety about, about nuclear holocaust. And there's also an artificial intelligence crisis looming. So I feel like in a way, it's interesting that this idea of like, maybe we just leave the earth behind guys. Maybe we go colonize another planet. Maybe we need to start over. And maybe we need to start over with a bunch of young people who won't make the mistakes that our generation has made, who will, I don't know, have more, move outside of just science because there is a lot of different epistemological frames, a lot of ways of knowing in this novel, right? The idea of, um, you know, Jesse, one of our characters, the reason he knows he has to be on this mission, our super botanist, Sciencey kid who's passed all of his exams with flying colors is because a fortune teller said he would leave the earth when he was 20. And so <laughs> yeah, there's two ways to do that. He could either die or be on this mission. And despite all of his scientific expertise at age 20, he has the three PhDs, he believes that fortune teller, right? So the novel's sort of asking us, like, when we sit beneath the sort of Lamocles, how do we? Get inside of it and move on in our very complex world, anxiety-ridden world. What
1: that could just be human existence. Mm -hmm. For for Mm -hmm. as far as from the beginning of time, yeah, poverty has been where man has started or humans have started, and every step of the way there is some cataclysm, some thing from either outside the earth or within, you know, some war coming to you, some famine, some, uh, uh, plague, something that would, would happen that would, you know, it, it's just part of human history. It's mm-hmm. just, and the, and then, you know, it's always the, you know, when I say the dreamers way of saying, well, you know, if we could just, if we could just separate ourselves and do it again, all of these human experiences Will not follow us, mm-hmm. but that's the fool is that you recognize it's just part of the human experience. So, whether it's here or Terra 2, it's it's Human, humanity—it's it's just what it is. And
2: I love that the author says that in this book. She
0: exactly. writes that
2: exactly like that. The problem is the humans. You think that you can evade all of these problems, but you're bringing humanity with
1: you wherever you go. I but, love I mean, that it, moment. And I don't want to say it's a problem. It's just part of the human experience. It is what we are as a species. And it's just, you know, you don't have to look at, you know, how you experience life as the burden. It is just what it is. For sure. We get all of those different viewpoints in this writing. She
2: does such a great job. The question that Pam raised is, why is this set in 2012? That seems like a very important detail. I don't know the answer. For 2012? The
1: Mayans. Oh, the Mayans is 2012. The, the, you know, there was there was a change. The Mayan calendar ended. The new one comes. You know, for some people, they thought it was the end of the world. And mm-hmm. just remember this. Wow. As as the, the more you get, all right, so the higher le- level thinking, let's go to Duke, let's go to MIT, let's go to, you know, UConn or whatever. The smarter these people get, this idea that they don't still ha- bring with them um, I don't know, their tarot cards, their uh, lucky uh, no, uh, rock, or the, you know, that they sort of abandon the um, the irrational. Yeah, you know, it's you can be as logical as you want, but it doesn't mean you're going to abandon a, a rational thought.
0: I love that, Chip. And you guys, when I was reading this book a couple months ago, I thought, oh, I want to read this with Stephen Chip, and I also thought. I can't figure out why it's set in 2012. Like, why not just set it in 2040, right? Like any other <laughs> book of this kind. Um, or if you're going to set it in 2012, why not make it like a seriously alternate history where this is a world where something big happened or didn't happen 20 to 100 years ago and we're living in a different world, but she changes almost nothing. Except, I mean, there's a bit more focus on space exploration than we've had in our world. But otherwise, you still have the climate crisis. You still have all the things that we experience. And why, said in 2012, Chip? And I thought to myself, those guys might have an answer. And you did. Mayan calendar. I would, have never, I would have never thought of that. But I like that.
1: And, and I'm so it's- sorry. You're Canadian. So we know that you know they're going to be a rock band and they're going to sing Tom Sawyer. Oh. In, uh, 2012, right? 2012.
2: <laughs> it's a rush. It's a rush. album that's the, answer. <laughs> the answer is rush. Wow. Good night, everybody.
0: So often the answer is rush. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that's that's really good. Like that really fits philosophically with so many of the questions she's looking at. There you I go. Like that. We're
2: solving
1: we're solving we're the solving. world's problems
2: one question at a time.
1: It's a puzzle that we must figure out and then we die. <laughs>
2: so one of the things that you just brought up is the idea of space travel and the f- funding of space travel which which changed a lot in the last 10 years 20 years but the idea that she's presenting here is that somehow we put together the money for this exploration to get these kids trained to put them out there to do this 22-year flight and then once the launch happened That was the exciting part. And everyone kind of forgot about them because they're 22 years later, you know, maybe the adults won't even see the fruition of this mission. That was an interesting statement.
0: Well, and it's very, very competitive. So, in this slightly alternate world of 2012, we've got this we're following the british mission right and we've got the chinese have a very strong space program the russians do as do the americans so we've got these four at least four really strong programs that are all seriously funding space travel and all in strong competition with each other although they are willing to collaborate as well as we we will find out so this is a this is an alternate world where we've really put our focus on space exploration. Oh. And it's interesting that part of why Terra 2 is so central to these people is it's a utopian world, right? It looks mm-hmm. just like Earth, 23 light years away or however far. And it actually has all of these features that we look that we look for in an habitable planet, the Goldilocks planet as I think they they note in this text. Mm-hmm. But also It was dreamed of by a woman named Tessa Dalton, after whom the school that the kids go to for training is named. And so there's a mystical element to why Terra 2, and then all of these big space programs are following that mystique in order to pursue colonization of this planet. So that theme, right, of how Mm -hmm. do we know things... And let's not discount ways of knowing that are non-scientific.
2: And we've been searching for a Goldilocks planet for a long time.
1: I, I didn't realize I needed to put on the uh, turn of the lava lamp. At this
2: there time. is some philosophy in this one, ship. We should have warned you. There should have been a warning label at the beginning, mm-hmm. Chip, There's going to be some philosophy and some metaphors when we get into a ship called the Damocles. <laughs> <when>
1: these kids <laughs> are. Let, let me let me lay back and relax. And let the mind just take us where we need to go. <laughs> the
2: the idea of space exploration has been challenging because the financial piece is so challenging. The idea of how we can spend money, waste money on this, while there's so many things on Earth. We've had several books that run on that theme.
1: Well, and, and think about what we're, what's going on today. I mean, we've thrown a hundred billion dollars towards two wars after, you know, throwing in another $50 billion after another, um, you know, we put $50 billion towards Ukraine, another $50 billion towards Ukraine, another $50 billion towards um, Israel. We. It's not like we don't throw money at stuff, mm-hmm. but what what is missing from society today could be in the 60s, you know, John Kennedy. Uh, John F. Kennedy said, "We will land a person on the moon." Yeah, and that was my fake uh, accent I, I, there. I got that. Yeah, that
0: was beautiful.
1: <laughs> I did my best. But you know, w- what we do? yesterday I watched something where they talked um, the with the concern was rising um, oceans, and one of the things that they were talking about was putting a dam in the Strait of Gibral- Gibraltar and basically protecting the Mediterranean because they're having rising um, oceans. Um, or whether you should to go out and, and do it outside of England and put a dam. But the, the straightest of well, for my for my example is, I, I can't remember what it was, eight meters. I mean, it really isn't that, that great. The cost of it would be, I don't know, whatever, a trillion dollars, more than a trillion dollars. And it would produce a bunch of electricity. Th- what is missing from society today is ambitious things beyond our our thought, where um society can 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 do something that's amazing, like sending a rocket ship to a, another planet with humans on it. Um, that's incredibly ambitious. And I think maybe that is uh, something that could define our the zeitgeist of today is the lack of those type I'm sorry, the lack of appetite to do something so overly ambitious way beyond where um you know what what normally we would we would choose.
0: and I think that's one of the questions that this novel really, really asks is like what is the future of space travel? right? And, you know, where are we going with space travel? We do have some very interesting missions out there, but not a ton. And they mostly don't have a lot of humans involved. And what are we doing, right? Like, are we? And and to what degree is the future of space travel public versus private?
2: Mm-hmm. And I love the metaphor of the journey of life in this journey of space and the right. metaphor of finding a new world is so well-defined thinking back to all those discoveries of new worlds here on earth. Oh, we, the Mayflower discovered a new world and the author writes, yeah, that didn't, uh, didn't go quite the way that your, your myth goes on that one.
0: Right, there are just a lot of questions I think about the ethics um, of of the program. And I feel like the ethics go two ways. There's that sort of anxiety about colonization. What if someone's already there? But there's also the question, there's a ton of poverty on earth and this is an extremely expensive venture. And so how do you allocate resources towards the future?
1: Let Let me address the first one. Steve, what was Gene Roddenberry's um, directive through Star Trek when they, when um, like the Enterprise would go visit a um,
0: the prime directive? A, yeah, prime wasn't it not,
1: not to interfere? Not
2: to interfere, not to change the history of any other world to, that we don't have the
1: right to interfere. Mm-hmm. So, and and so that's that's a pretty uh, you know. We, we've thought about this, obviously, for a long time. Mm-hmm. The other part, you know, there's the poverty. Poverty has existed as long as we've all existed. So we it's not like we can solve every nuance of society. Being ambitious, you know, it's, it's okay. You can't, you, you know, everything can't be solved. Uh, and in fact, that's, we're, we're, I'm reading another story, and that was one of the the, um, the realizations. The place may look like heaven, but there's still people working underneath hmm. that are not experiencing experiencing the heaven. Right. Um, the idea is how can we help more people to experience the heaven? Is what I, you know on, on a grand scheme, and if you can continually expand that to add more and more and more people, certainly. Um, society today, at least in the last, I don't know, 250 years or so has solved that. And in, in such a wonderful way, we have fewer people, uh, starving today than we did in the past as far as a percentage, but yeah, there's still people suffering and we would like to figure out ways that we can make that less. I mean, that would be lovely.
0: And that's one of the paradoxes of utopia, right? And Terra 2 is so clearly expressed as a utopian space, is that there's always a cost to utopia. The perfect place is always no place. And so what what is the cost, right, is one of the things that utopian writers always explore. And certainly, Tammy O does a wonderful job of that.
2: And I thought that's the reason why you chose this book was because of her analysis of the word utopia. But I really think that deep down, the reason why you chose this book is for one simple conversation where Astrid says, I guess we need a name at least. Surely we can decide that. Another character says, new... Something that already exists. That's too obvious, said Elliot. But Astrid continued to list them anyway, like New Earth or New London, or no, wait, that already exists. Pam, do you (laughs) live in New (laughs) London?
0: i may live in new london it was so funny when i saw your note because i had realized that when i read it and then completely forgot so yes <laughs> that's why we chose this book Guaranteed, new you dream of new london would be obviously the alternate title to this book
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: there is a new london in new
2: hampshire i think that gets very confusing <laughs> there are new londons all over the place and so <laughs> I, I live in me. Hampshire, not New Hampshire, but people right. don't know how to pronounce Hampshire because it doesn't have new in front of it. It's so
1: frustrating. <laughs> so mine is the new New Hampshire. <laughs> even, even newer. <laughs> new York. New 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 York.
2: Oh yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> so you guys, I'm delighted that you both really enjoyed this novel. I feel like when I was looking through Goodreads comments, because there aren't a lot of articles on it yet. Um people were really, really mixed about it. And so Mm. I didn't know how it would go down for you. Um, A lot of people really loved it. And I'm certainly in that grouping. But a lot of people thought it was too long. And that there was too much hand waving. (laughs) And I do understand that concern. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so one of the Goodreads reviews that I that really made me laugh because it's so accurate, even though the person gave it very few stars and I gave it all five, um, says uh the psychologist for that space program should be fired, stat. And just really struck me as a very insightful point that this program has gathered together all of these incredibly bright young people, um, has put them at Dalton, this you know, space academy, this, this, uh,
2: Harry this... Potter school for, for space travel. Yeah,
0: exactly. And they're trying to basically get all students who are age like 11, 12 to have three PhDs each by the time they're 18. So mm-hmm. it's a very, very high pressure situation. And there's, you know, a lot of winnowing cause you got to get it down to six astronauts and then six kids in the backup crew. But it is very, very true that your six finalists um, do have very substantial mental health problems. And Mm -hmm. you could kind of predict this from the way their education is set up. This is something we think about a lot in education is how do we balance the pressure to allow students to really to, to, to give them good motivation to do well, and also the support to make sure that they're mentally healthy enough to do well. So. Dalton is very, very focused on a pressure competitive model, and you know that there are going to be some big problems out of that. But it struck me that in a lot of ways, this young adult novel, because in some, in a lot of ways, it is a young adult novel, is thinking through a lot of really pressing issues in mental health. We have, you know, we do have trigger warning. We have a suicide rate at the beginning of this novel. Someone who decides that they won't go on the mission.
2: Which drives a lot of the storytelling from there on. That is a central character. Despite the fact that she chooses suicide, she is still a central character to all of these kids.
0: Right. Because we have the impact of suicide on friends and family, right? Explored in a lot of detail. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, We have one student who has a very major depressive episode Mm -hmm. and um, also exploring, too, how other people see that. Some people are very empathetic and and some people really aren't. Um, We have bullying, you know, in the the character of Harry. We get a very difficult scene. Um, The trigger warnings that would go with this if you ever were to teach it um, would be substantial. Um, We have two eating disorders again. Described and expressed in a lot of detail that are going to be really hard for some people to read. And we have someone who struggles with hallucinations. So, I mean, no one on this mission escapes a severe mental health disorder.
1: I I can immediately think, you know, modern day examples of a situation like this would be any of the military academies, Mm -hmm. whether it's West Point or Naval Academy, Mm -hmm. uh, the Air Force Academy. And you know, you, as you move up that that level, you get to something like Space Force or some mm-hmm. exotic, you know, naval group, or um, the, you know, you can immediately see that the pressure gets higher and higher and higher. And you know, people people have breakdowns. They have they have challenges when they're expected to perform at you know above human levels. Uh, they they truly are in a special group but you know that there is fallout because of that.
2: And I love the analysis of is this school programming these kids? Is this school creating these kids? Creating these crises, creating these mental health challenges? Is this school uh being being evil to create this situation? That was a f- <laughs> That was a very
1: eye-opening conversation. But it could just be the byproduct of that. You know, they didn't have to be there. Mm -hmm. They they could opt out. But, you know, eventually we come to that point where your drive to be there. There are people who want to be Navy SEALs. There's only few people that can make it to that elite group. Mm -hmm. And they... There's fallout all through it. And that's part of the the training is they go, there's there's no shame in, in quitting. You don't have to do this. But the but people who make it through, they become this elite group. Well, does it take a ter- certain type of mentality to do so? And is that a positive byproduct? Well, um, if you have that mission that has to be done, they are a good, good group uh, to do it. Does that mean they're a good group to work in other areas of society? Maybe not. Maybe not.
0: Well, and at the beginning of this novel, I imagined that we would see an extremely dark earth. Like I was thinking, why are all these kids and all these parents allowing these kids to go into this incredibly high risk mission, this high pressure schooling, things have got to be super, super, super bad on earth. But then that's not really what we see. Now, we don't see that much earth, but what we see seems to be kind of pretty normal. You know, we've got some, you know, poppy's, poppy's home life is, is marred by pretty manageable poverty. Like it's, you know, and, um, you know, the twins have their nice suburban home. Like, I mean, it seems like things are not apocalyptic on earth which i had imagined they would be if this was the situation
1: but is but that- even if we if we I I mean to be contrary and everything but as we we look at all pop science i should not call it pop science it's always moving towards like the end of times religion moves towards the end of times so this idea of being able to send a group out to prepare when everything goes bad I mean, it seems, I don't know, it seems pretty reasonable. But are we seeing
2: these kids' perspectives on how bad it is? As an 11-year-old, as a 12-year-old, do you, do you have that broader context? Or are we seeing this author giving us just a, a childish perspective on what's happening on the, on the planet?
0: It is interesting though, that we also have these four grownups and I love that there are four grownups on the trip, but we never get their perspectives. We only get interiority for our 16 protagonists, um, but they interact regularly with these other folks who, um, you know, the, the commander has a young family. He's leaving behind his, his very, his like two and four year old or whatever, And with the idea that they might join in a colony ship, right? Now, one thing that was very problematic is that the kids were working with their psychologist who was supposed to come on the mission and she was really wonderful and they were all super close to her. And then she gets blamed for the last minute suicide and by a like some sort of board that knows, you know, that whose decisions you very much are second guessing, she gets replaced at the last minute with someone who's not even that excited to be on this mission um, and who the kids don't know and trust. So that's a very strong indicator of, I don't know, like a lack of commitment to the mental health of these children Mm -hmm.
1: well i was going to say that there's sort of at any cost type of uh uh part of this mission and and to go back to the part where we don't really know a lot about the adults on this mission isn't that part of the story is that the older generation is always passing the baton Mm -hmm. down to the younger generation and while they may not be, they're, they're not there to procreate, they're there to prepare for the, the next baton that will be passed down. And they'll just be footnotes at that point, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. So, guys, let me ask you. So this is a pretty typical in a lot of ways. It's a typical space mission. We've got our protagonists. We've got our two generations. It's 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 a great setup. Lots of mental health. The characters are well drawn. Let me ask you honestly, was there a point in this novel where you thought, oh my God, she's going to kill them all? For
2: sure. Absolutely. Right? That's, I mean,
0: wasn't that amazing? I, like I, she sold me.
2: I, I was, I was concerned about that from the beginning, to be honest, uh-huh. because of the 22, 22 years is a long yeah. mission and <laughs> the, all of the you know, joy of all of this is fine, but I was, I was worried for these people from the beginning. Now I am of the generation that saw the space shuttle explode live on TV in my classroom. So I'm always on the edge of my seat on every rocket launch. And yes, I watch every one of them, (laughs) but I'm always worried for these people that are risking their lives for this adventure. And yes, it, at the height of this adventure, when everything, is going wrong i was i was thinking how many more pages are there in this book is she just going to kill all these people is it just going to end
1: absolutely i'll agree with that that you know i will agree that that there is that's there's certainly you know that that was a possibility of where where would go
0: and we know this genre we know that's that people will be saved right we've read plenty of these you might lose one or two characters but the mission will be saved we've read how many together how many separately we know this genre but she legit sold me that she might not save these kids and then out of nowhere spoiler alert they're saved but she did a fantastic job i thought of selling like it was so cold mm-hmm. there was so little oxygen and oh you could feel the cold oh you could feel it
2: she wrote oh. that so well i absolutely I was there in those scenes when she's naming she's numbering the cold and how cold it is and he's losing toes and uh all all of it she sold me for sure
1: and and that once again that could could be what existence is at some point is you're by yourself. It looks dark at times, mm-hmm. um you go through these are you know life changing events. you truly are in alone in the universe, and um you know, it takes humanity to kind of lift you through to the next part is it fate or luck? Or premonition.
0: That's the (laughs)
2: theme that stuck with me here was, is it fate for these kids to make it or uh, some of these kids to make it as the case may be? Mm -hmm.
0: So, you know, I want to talk about the ending. I always want to talk about the ending. So what did you think of this ending where two of our people and they weren't necessarily the two I would have guessed end up going back to earth and the rest continue on what did you think
1: well I was just say it makes sense though that um you know some people are born for adventure in a way and some mm-hmm. people want to nest it's it's about the predictability of it when you're young and there's endless possibilities you are ready for to go out and and forge your way but as you age and life beats you up a little bit Some people long just for the day-to-day. Very similar to that scene in The Matrix where the guy is eating the steak. He goes, I know it's not real, but I want to feel like it's real. Right. And this this is just... This is as as humans divide themselves as they age, as they experience things.
2: Yes. I I think that I was worried for these kids. I didn't love the... Very long skip in time in this 22 year mission <laughs> in the final <laughs> chapters. Like, this is happening, this adventure, and this is this, it's all horrible and everything's going to happen. Oh, and then we made it. I did not love that.
0: But Steve, if I read that correctly, we don't know that that happened. That's just Juno's dream of what happens, right? I don't
2: know. But it feels but, accurate. It and feels I love accurate. that I don't know. Exactly. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that is really happening or not. And the author is putting that together in such a way that it may have really happened. Maybe they really made it. Or maybe this is just still premonition.
0: What I thought was really I I personally loved this ending and it was so fast because guys like I when they were really really cold and didn't have quite enough oxygen I was like, there's only 14 minutes left, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <I> was, <laughs> we were really, really close, but I loved how quickly she rapped. <laughs> and sometimes it feels too fast, but to me, this felt just right because the two people who go back to Earth are Harry, the bully. There's no space for bullies on the program. He'll do just fine on Earth, you feel, but this isn't the right fit for him. But then you have Astrid, the person who wanted Tara too more than anything, and she has to pay the price for saving her sister's life metaphysically. And she knows that that price must be paid. And mm. so there's something about that that's, I don't know, it's both sad, but also there. it opens up this different way of knowing. Or in a way
2: it's that a hallucination through. that's happening right. while she's dying in the cold.
0: Yeah. Exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then I really did love that when Astrid gets back to Earth, that part felt real to me. She's like, oh, I can live on Earth. I'll be okay here. And then we get Juno's dream, the two twins. You have the twins, of course, again, <laughs> such a such a trope of this sort of genre. And, and Juno has the dream that feels very accurate to what is probably going to happen on, on Terra 2. So... I thought the I thought the ending was really it, to me it was really satisfying but even as I was like oh I'm so satisfied I thought not everyone's going to love this ending.
2: Yeah, it's <laughs> there, there are episodes of Star Trek that are you know, it's an hour long show, you got 45 minutes of excitement. This is not going to we're going to die. We're going everything's awful, it's terrible and then the last 10 minutes they go, eh, it's fine. Everything's fine. That that bothered me a little bit as someone who has gone through that so many times with Star Trek. Uh, but the the question of, is this real? Is this a hallucination? Is she, you know, is this the Sopranos ending? Spoilers. Whether <laughs> they are alive or dead at the end, we don't know. And that's so well written.
0: Right. Do we dream of Terra 2? Do we dream of electric sheep? Right? We just We just don't completely know at the end.
2: And and I love the last two quotes that I wrote down for this ending. They would remember, forget, and remember again the lessons of their ancestors. That metaphor of a new world is so well expressed once again here, thinking about how do we remember, how do we use history and learn from it is wonderful.
0: And then the very last line of all, what would you do, Astrid, for this day if you could do anything at all? And that's one of the questions that's asked again and again, right? What matters to us? What matters? And that's a question that's asked by science fiction. What does it mean to be human? And what matters? So, yay! I'm glad you guys enjoyed this one. I just really loved it and would highly recommend
2: I would recommend it to people who are interested in character analysis. The character analysis is fantastic. The storytelling is well done. I I do agree with some of the reviews that it's a little long and the 20 plus year trip is what is my least favorite (laughs) space genre. There's so much that can go wrong and does go wrong. Uh, I would, I would rather a, a little snippet, just a, this was the adventure on this piece of the trip they need a wormhole make it fast that's uh, again back to star <laughs> trek the 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 reasons why we move things so quickly in in this genre is because it's boring to get there
0: but steve isn't it interesting that we also read the ferryman which has a very similar focus on the journey rather than the destination just mm-hmm. a few months ago and we all enjoyed both of these novels despite the fact that they have this "quote unquote" weakness.
2: Hmm. Very interesting. Awesome, Pam. Thank you so much for once again bringing us a book that that really makes us think. Uh, I look forward to uh, the next twenty two years of our journey where we read more books and have more adventures.
0: <laughs> awesome. And thank you guys for reading this book with me. I really appreciate your insights as always. That's "Do You Dream
2: of Terra 2? published in twenty nineteen by Temi O. Oh.
1: Scroll
2: with it. Reason to scroll with it? There's plenty of things happening in the world. Uh, the mega corporations. Back to Good Burger 2 real quick. Mega corporations are are doing all sorts of fun things. Google has scanned over 25
1: million books, digitizing literature. They did, and and they were prevented from um, that project. Kind of stopped a little bit because the argument was they were violating. Copyrights. Mm-hmm. So Google started out by by um, like a lot of projects. They're like, well, what if we had a library that everyone could could go to and you could use for reference? Excellent. And uh, this is just this is a Twitter post, by the way, where it ha- does have supporting, real supporting material. But what is so amazing about it was because Google had put together this library that you could pull from that um, it increased the print demand for those books by an average of about $3,700 or more in sales. Per book. Per book. Per book. Wow. So, you know, think about how many books don't get printed or go out of print and you just cannot find Mm -hmm. that material. Well, now you have the ability to reference that material. Access.
2: The, the question of access is something that we've talked about a lot with the advent of the World Wide Web. The people around the world who have access to information can utilize that information. When, when it's not available, it's not available. If it's gone forever, there's episodes of Doctor Who that are gone forever. There's nothing that we can do about that. Should we acknowledge our overlords
1: that will be coming, Steve?
2: Yeah, here's here's where this becomes a part of the conversation, is the copyright concerns over these books is one thing, but the copyright concerns when we digitize things goes to the question of AI and the future of how all of that copyrighted material becomes a part of the next thing. It's been a big week for Chat GPT and OpenAI. The founder, Sam Altman, and I just want to say the name Altman is very, very disturbing to me in this story. <laughs> He may, not, he may not exist, He exist, Steve. He might not be a real person. Sam Altman was fired on Friday, November 17th. The employees of OpenAI and the investors, including Microsoft, stated a revolt demanding that the board of directors resign and Altman be reinstated. By Tuesday, November 22nd, Altman was reinstated and a new board was being chosen. This is intriguing to me.
1: No, no kidding. It talks about visionaries. Mm-hmm. You know we I don't know Sam Altman very well, but you think about what Bill Gates or what uh, Steve Jobs or you know, Peter Field, Steve Jobs. E- Elon Musk, mm-hmm. you know all of these individuals were able to build
2: mm-hmm.
1: and at the same time, you know, you've got boards of directors and and for any number of reasons, they may say you're not meeting expectations, and uh, anyway, they fired Sam Altman and, and then, Immediately, the employees started leaving, Mm -hmm. and immediately he came back, and then uh, they're they're going to replace the board. How How fascinating.
2: It is absolutely fascinating and totally brings up the idea of Steve jobs and his innovation because Apple fired Steve jobs and sure. Steve jobs went on to create so many wonderful things and the computer that he created outside of Apple was the computer that was used to make the World Wide web. So those innovations that lead to innovations that lead to innovations that lead to the future, this is a story to keep an eye on for sure. There's some speculation about uh, why he was fired and the idea that maybe open AI has gotten more advancements in the field of artificial general intelligence. Maybe we're seeing the birth of uh, the scary AI here, but the idea of safety. Is in place here. We are also thinking about how we're going to keep AI safe so that it doesn't become that scary dystopian future that we have uh, read way too many books about.
1: Well, if Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up naked, maybe outside Come somewhere, with me if you want to live <laughs> exactly, then we'll know there's a problem, Steve. Then there's
2: a problem when <laughs> when Arnie shows up. Then we got a problem. Oh wait, he's been here for years. <laughs> I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think?
1: Well, only if we can come back next week, Steve.
2: I think we can. We want to thank Pam for coming in and talking about another great book, another thought thought experiment into our future and technology. We, we have so much fun on this show. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is scrolling at gmail.com. We're on threads and x.com and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hessenflow. We'll see you in the future.
1: Cue the Mariah Carey song exterminate <laughs>